State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Hey, FitFam, welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. In this week's episode, we talk all things recovery with one of the top high-performance strategists around, Dr. Brandon Marcello. Brandon has over 20 years' experience in the performance enhancement industry where he brings innovation, education, and proven application to the worlds of sport performance, health, fitness, and wellness. With his extensive involvement in both the applied and research worlds, he has implemented successful high-performance training programs for professional, Olympic, and collegiate athletes. He's also worked extensively with individuals and organizations, taking them to the next level through multi-year and one-time human performance consulting projects in the United States and abroad. Dr. Masello is a recognized author, researcher, and international presenter, he routinely speaks around the world on a number of topics pertaining to elite-level performance. His work appears regularly in numerous journals, textbooks, and periodicals, and he has also served as a consultant to the U.S. military, many Division I programs, international sports federations, as well as Adidas, Under Armour, and Nike. So sit back, relax, and I will see you on the other side. Welcome, Brandon Marcello, to the State of the Industry podcast. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, so I know, because as, as we talked about a bit off air, I've listened to a lot of the different podcasts that you've done, uh, specifically mm -hmm. one with Eric Cressy, all about sleep. And it got me really, really interested in speaking with you. And then when I spoke with uh, Michelle Dalcor and uh, he mentioned your name, he's like, you got to have him on as well, because I brought up some questions about recovery with him. And he's like, oh, if you want more, you got to go to my guy, my, my, the guy that I talked to about it. So, um, yeah, so that's how I got your name and uh, gotcha. some contact information. So it's great that we're able to sit down and chat. So for some of the listeners who maybe don't know who you are, uh, can you just kind of just give a bit of a background about who you are and what you currently do. Sure. So um, probably I'll start with what I currently do. I'm a, I'm a high performance strategist. And what that means is I help solve human performance problems. So what that means is I work with uh, pro athletes. I work with sports teams. Uh, a lot of my time right now is currently with the United States military to solve these human performance problems and different ones. It could be anything from, can you help us educate uh, our teams on sleep? 
Can you help us develop a recovery protocol? Can you come in and see what we do well and what we don't do well in our high performance system? How is our staff? Are we big enough? Are we small enough? Do we have the resources that we need or don't need? Mm-hmm. Um, can you drive a nutrition plan for us? Um, can you help us solve in the military? Can you help us solve the billion dollar musculoskeletal injury problem that we're experiencing with our, yeah. with our troops, right? So it could really range between anything and everything. Um, can you look at this wearable technology? Can you vet this wearable technology? So anything that touches human performance or pertains to it, yeah. um, I kind of deal with, right? And, and, and people then ask, as you did, how did you get there? Um, and you get there by making a lot of mistakes, right? That's, why, <laughs> that's how you become a consultant. Yeah. Is you can say, I have stepped there. Do not step there. I can tell you bad things will happen if you step there, yeah. right? Um, so, you know, I started as a strength coach. That's it. I was a strength coach and I worked at IMG Academies, which then was called the Nick Bolletary Tennis and Sports Academy in Bradenton, Florida, right? And we were part of um, IPI, which was the International Performance Institute. And um, from there, um, after a short time there, I moved to Arizona. Mark Verstegen and I moved to Arizona in 99 and helped start, create what was Athletes Performance then, which is now Exos. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny. I just posted my old business cards from both of those places the other day on Instagram. <laughs> I found them. Um, and it was funny because the address for athletes performance was actually Mark's house because uh-huh. that's where we were running. We didn't have a brick and mortar then. So we were yeah. running the business side out of his house and, um, all the equipment was crammed into the garage and boxes and t-shirts in the garage. And we're training athletes at the Arizona state campus, but, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, so did that, left there after about four years, went back to school, got my PhD, um, spent some time while doing my PhD as a director of performance for one of our Olympic teams in the United States. Yeah. Moved on to Stanford, was at Stanford for seven years as a director of sports performance. And 2014, I started doing my own thing. And now it's 2020, still doing my own thing and um, having fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually had the privilege of going down and uh, really looking around athletes' performance before it turned into Exos. Um, I've only been to Arizona once, only been to Phoenix mm-hmm. once, but I had the opportunity to go in and walk around because I remember in university, one of our professors put up a video of of athletes' performance. I was like, I have to go there. I have to see this place because it was phenomenal what you what you've done and and. Um, I know I actually had the opportunity to speak with Mark um, at a Perform Better in Long Beach uh, two years ago, three years ago, I believe. And uh, he actually told the story of kind of the beginnings of athletes' performance and how it got to be what it is now. And um, yeah, the stuff that you guys had to go through, some of the like some of the hurdles and uh, some of the places that you had, like you said, it was at a Mark's house at one time. And then, you know, it wasn't always what it is now with the beautiful building and the turf and the, you know, glass door. Like it was, yeah. Um, we were actually at one point we moved to a, what used to be a Staples office supply store. <laughs> it was this giant vacated. I mean, no carpet, no nothing on the walls, like an old Staples. Yeah. So we called we call it the Staples center. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing it was just hysterical like yeah, yeah just the growing pains and uh it was fun yeah it's yeah. cool to see it where it is today <laughs> yeah i love what you said about being a 
being a consultant that you made a lot of mistakes along the way. Cause I feel that same way when I'm talking about educating and uh, teaching, right. You know, people who can't do, they, they teach, right. Like that's basically what you said. People who couldn't play a sport, they coach. And then I guess people who've made a lot of mistakes end up consulting on them <laughs> in oh, the yeah. end. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned something that uh, I found was really interesting. So I want to actually touch on that before we get into the recovery piece. So you mentioned with the military right now, um, you've been working with them a little bit about the injury, uh, the musculoskeletal injury issue that they have. So I don't want to ask you specifically about that, but just in general, mm-hmm. we, we see in a lot of industries that have repetitive movement, we see that there are um, a lot of injuries with whether you have to carry heavy loads a lot, which military obviously have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, You're in weird positions a lot. Um, A lot of things are unilateral, you know, when they're, you know, they're looking at holding their gun or something like that, right? So how do you address things like that in a workplace or in an athlete who most of these sports are very, very unilateral sports. They are repetitive movements, right? People think that sports are really good for you when really they're not um, that great for you when you're looking at the musculoskeletal system as a whole. So how do you attack that? I think the, I think you have to look at things as a curvilinear relationship, right? So you have like this inverted U and there's this like sweet spot right at the top. And on the sides, you know, it's, it's, it's like Goldilocks, right? It's like just right. One side's not enough. The other side is too much. And with sport, you know, there are, you do develop an asymmetry um, and those asymmetries are beneficial and they do help. Um, But when that asymmetry becomes out of control, then it becomes something which can actually hurt you or can increase your predisposition to becoming hurt, can decrease your shelf life, however you want to stack it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's being able to allow for certain adaptations to occur that can be beneficial, but prevent further and more undesirable adaptations from occurring as a result of that. Right. And a lot of that comes down to the preparation and whether it's an athlete or whether it's a um, soldier or whether it's a special operator or whether it's just, you know, a physician or, stay-at-home dad, if we neglect the human system, we're going to be less apt to perform at our best. Mm-hmm. So many times in the world of athletics, we're like, okay, I'm working with a basketball player. How do I make them a better basketball player? Or working with like a war fighter. How do you make them a better war fighter? I think we should start by making them better humans. Yeah. And if you optimize the human capability, then whatever row they choose to go down, like I said, stay-at-home dad, soldier, physician, teacher, whatever, right? Gamer. Um, then they have a greater chance of being their best. The odds are stacked in their favor. Yeah. 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 So when you're talking about making them better humans, mm-hmm. for the audience who maybe doesn't know necessarily what that means, what do you mean by making them better humans? Because I like uh, – sorry, because I heard um, – I was actually listening to a podcast that had um, – Great cook. Oh my gosh. I was like, what the heck is this first time? I, I got cook in my mind. Um, so great cook. And we, 
he spoke about being zoo humans, right? Like we're stuck in this repetitive, doing the same things over and over again. So getting outside and as you know, I know you guys at uh, the IOM and, and, and Michelle talk a lot about variability. Mm-hmm. So can you just explain what you mean by um, being more human, being better humans? Yeah, well, I think the, the, it's very complicated. Um, and I think it's complicated because humans, we are complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll, I'll talk about a project that I just finished up maybe two, two or three years ago now with, with the military. And it was to develop a framework to assess um, human performance. Um, and so I developed a framework. It um, has over 100 elements and their connections that make up performance. So for instance, um, you know, there's a social, emotional, physical, and cognitive piece of it, right? We get so caught up in the physical world. We think physical all the time, you know, because yeah. it's easy. We can see it. I can yeah. see myself changing body compositionally. I can, I can see my strength numbers improve. I can run farther, right? Yeah. Um, so that's an easy thing to quantify. But if we don't look at the other buckets, the social, emotional, and cognitive piece, then we're comp- putting ourselves at a, in a compromising position, right? So to be human, we need to optimize all of those 100 elements plus more because um, I haven't figured them all out. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, and they could be different for everybody, right? It could be physiology needs to be optimized. It could be their uh, social circles need to be optimized. It could be their microbiome needs to be optimized for somebody else. It could be their sleep for somebody else. It could be sleep and nutrition. It could be, you know, movement competencies, physical literacy, and, um, you know, know, fluid intelligence, right? Emotional intelligence versus other people. Yeah. A ton of different variables. Um, So what I mean is if we can figure out a way on just just the basic level to optimize physically, cognitively, socially, and emotionally, yeah, then we'll be in a better position. Yeah. So then the organism itself is in a better position for adaptation and then being able to withstand, you know, forces or things kind of outside of what their norm is. Yeah. hundred percent. Are are we putting our bodies in the best position to accept training Mm -hmm. and to um, express our abilities as humans? Yeah. Yeah. And be resilient while doing it. hundred percent. Let's talk a little bit about recovery. So I want to start off with the just kind of the bigger picture about what the actual components of recovery, because you, you we often think, as you said, about the physical side of things. Um, but what does recovery entail and and how how can we take a more of a broader look at that? Yeah, so recovery can entail anything that allows you to become, um, to calm the levels of the nervous system, to relax the levels of the nervous system, to um, bring about more of a parasympathetic state. And again, that can be done a number of ways. We get, again, we get, you just mentioned it, we get stuck in the physical state. Um, And there might be a time we need to focus physically on recovery, but you know, there is something to be said for, you know, going out uh, with some friends and having a glass of wine and being social. Mm-hmm. There is a recovery component to it. Um, you know, an example I use is like, um, it's the holiday time, all every, all, the whole family's together, 
they're around the dinner table, dessert is being served, and you have one family member that's really worried about their weight. Yeah. And they're trying to cut back and, and they, they, they just, so they're abstaining from dessert. No, I'm not going to have any. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting there around the table. And because that was a physical decision that drove them not to have dessert, they are missing out the social, the cognitive, and emotional piece. Yeah. So there's probably a net negative which is occurring, yeah. right? Because they are afraid to consume this sugary piece of cake, yeah. right? But rather, if they just consumed it and laughed and enjoyed their time, there'd probably be a huge net positive compared to the negative aspects of consuming that one piece of cake, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. the thing. It's like hmm. each, each component, there's a different weight with each, each scenario and what can it bring you and how can it enrich you as a human and optimize your physiology and, 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 and recover you, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that because I think that's a big discussion to have specifically surrounding nutrition and and weight because a lot of people, they get stuck into a f- like this fear of food, right? Um, so, or they do it in hiding and then they feel ashamed about it. And when you think about that, that's even worse being ashamed and hiding it because you then have, as you said, that emotional, that cognitive kind of negative as well as the physical negative from having it. So yeah, I like that. I like the way you said that. So when we're looking at uh, recovery as a whole, then how can we um, how can we start to kind of tease out some of the misconceptions that a lot of people have about recovery? Because when people think recovery, they think about um, just you know sleep, eat, uh, whatever you know, breathe right. Like breathing is a big thing now in recovery. And so when we're looking at maybe not sports specifically, but maybe uh, training, um, what are some of the misconceptions surrounding nutrient timing, surrounding sleep timing, even training, like what time to train and the yeah. amount of time between sessions? Um, I, think there's, I think the one thing which is lacking in all of these scenarios is context. Mm-hmm. And people like to just take the broad brush and paint everybody with it. And the wonderful thing about being individuals is that we are individual, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We are not the same. Yeah. Sure, we share same, same physiological principles and same anatomical principles, but not everybody is the same. Even twins are not the same. Yeah. Right? Um, there are on a certain level, but, but they're individuals as a, at the end of the day. Um, so I think wrapping things in context is essential. So specifically to your question, like, you mentioned like nutrient timing. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there, that, that anabolic window that we used to think was within that 20 minutes after exercise. Oops. Right. We, <laughs> we were wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's the beautiful thing about the scientific process. And the beautiful thing about science is that science, science and scientists leave breadcrumbs when they yeah. do research. And so you read through that research study, and then there's this part at the end called limitations. And they even talk about them in the discussion too, right? And, you know, yeah. geez, if we were to do this again, this is what we would do differently. Yeah. So that if somebody wants to replicate that study, they would say, oh, okay, let's replicate it, but let's take these crumbs that they left us and make, make these corrections so we can maybe get a better result. Yeah. Uh, and what they found from that original research in the 90s from John Ivey down at, at University of Texas, Austin, um, they haven't been able to replicate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that metabolic window is really about 24 hours. 
Yeah. Um, so it's like, shoot, you can get a post-exercise shake in. And I was right there in the early days of AP. I mean, yeah. we're whipping out the shakes. We got them lined up. Names are on them. And we finished the workout. Go get your shakes. Then we'll finish recovery. Um, yeah. Now, if it's, if it's a way of getting your athlete or your client or just somebody some decent quality nutrition because they don't eat very well, by all means, consume it. Yeah. But educate them because we do have a responsibility to educate them on what we now know, which is, you know, we're wrong. Yeah. Uh, science has evolved and we found out that really from a standpoint of, you know, an anabolic window, this really isn't helping you from a standpoint of getting something back in you. That's decent. This is great. Yeah. Right. But, but it's not restricted or time. You don't have to rush. You don't have 20 minutes. You're not on a clock. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's a context also of there's something called the, um, um, the muscle full theory. Mm -hmm. And that's also looking at the context of when you last ate. So, you know, if I'm going in and doing an afternoon workout at four in the afternoon and I haven't eaten anything since eight in the morning, right now that post-exercise shake may serve a better purpose yeah. because I haven't had anything for, I don't know, eight hours, as opposed to me having breakfast, having lunch, maybe having something pre-workout yeah. and then now having something post-workout, there's going to be very little because the, the muscle's theoretically full. Yeah. Um, so there's context around that. Right. And that's, again, goes back to the whole thing. Same with sleep, right. There's context around everything. Yeah. You know, uh, I heard you shouldn't take a nap. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's context, right. Yeah. Are, are you tired? Do you need to pay back some sleep debt? Great. Yeah. Or is it 10 o'clock at night and you want to take an hour nap? Right. And I had a, a story I tell about this is I had a college roommate who did that. He said, man, I'm tired. And nine o'clock at night, he goes and lies down and uh, he gets up like at 1130 yeah. at night. I was like, man, I needed that. And I'm like, dude, you're going to have trouble going to sleep. He goes, nah, I'll be fine. I go to bed. I wake up the next morning to be at the weight room at 630. So I walk out of my room at like 610 and yeah. he's there watching TV and using, you know, clicking away. I'm like, couldn't sleep. He goes, no, I don't know why. Damn this thing. So, <laughs> and it's like, I have an idea, right? Yeah. This is one of those things where it's like, you know, there, there's context that has to be really wrapped around everything. Yeah. Um, whether it's recovery, sleep, nutrition, HRV, all of these metrics that we use to measure things. Yeah. Uh, if they, if they lack context, then there's really, that's where we get into trouble. Yeah. Yeah, then that thing's interesting. I only ever did that, like sleeping late is after like a long day and then I'm just going to go out that night and I needed a little yeah. boost before I went out when I was in university. Yep. Um, yeah, but never never just a random nap at 9.30. If it's 9.30, I'm probably just going to bed at that oh, point. So you, you mentioned something that I want to talk a little about. So when we're looking at a a specific client, um, what's the best, like, and I know it's like, you know, the questions that you ask, but do you have go-to questions when you're trying to gather context on an individual to help get the information that you specifically want regarding recovery? Sure. I mean, I think it's getting to know them as a person. What, what are their stresses in life? What are they trying to accomplish? Where are they trying to go? Why are they coming to see me? Mm -hmm. Right. 
um, obviously they want to move the needle of performance. Yeah. Um, but how do they move that ball down the field is the question, right? And, and I think that's kind of where, where is their sticking point? That's yeah. probably the first question I would ask, you know, what, what, why me? What are you trying to solve? What problem are you trying to solve? And where's your sticking point? We'll figure that out together, right? Yeah. So we talk about the basics or what I call like pre-covery, like sleep and nutrition. I think that's mm-hmm. pre-covery. I don't think there's not a hot tub. There's not a cold plunge. There's not an electrical stimulant in the world that's going to help offset poor nutrition and, 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 and a bad night's sleep. Yeah. Um, so we start there. We talk about breathing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about health. Uh, we, we have those just basic general questions where you start to get to know somebody, um, like a health questionnaire, an injury questionnaire, a training questionnaire. Um, what do they like to do? What do they not like to do? What do they want to do in life? What do they not want to do in life? And that's where we start, right? Yeah. And then yeah. when you get to know them as an individual, you can also figure out what, how, how to prescribe better for that individual. Yeah. Um, rather than just a, a random type of prescription. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when it comes to prescri- prescription, the trainer understands the theoretical side of things. They understand, okay, I think I'm supposed to do something like this. Mm-hmm. But as you said, wrapping it in context is difficult because that then leads to the you know, the individualization and the specificity of what you're about to do with that client. And I think for a lot of people, that's actually the hardest thing, not the actual program design, not anything else. It's making it all specific to that client. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a quick example, a perfect example, a couple of them. One, um, uh, at, at university, uh, you know, I was working with the team and we were going to try and get them in the cold plunge. Uh, it was a high intensity workout day and we know cold plunge is ideal after high intensity training, 10 to 15 minutes, but it was also exam time. Mm-hmm. And I knew who my really academic stressed out individuals were. And to me, they needed to skip the recovery session. Why? Because they'd be ruminating in their head the entire time, that 10, 15 minutes in that cold plunge about I should be studying right now. Yeah. That's creating more stress than, again, it goes back to the the cake type of example at the table, right? It's like I'm putting them through cognitive and emotional stress, trying to recover them physically. No, that's a net negative. So, Yeah. 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 And I guess that net negative is going to be in like specific to each and every individual. So you got to figure out where, as you said, the bucket that they lack the most in. um, And then that's the one that you probably want to fill over the other one. So if you do have somebody who's, I don't want to say high strung, but a little bit more uh, easily stressed, easily uh, made a little bit more anxious, nervous about things. You know, you talked about a student and exams, then we, that's probably the one that we want to fill over maybe something like the physical, right? You want to have that. Uh, in those situations kind of override that. Um, One other kind of seemingly random question. So you mentioned a lot of research and I know you are in research a lot looking at new things because you want to stay on top of kind of new things coming out, make sure that what, what you're still, what you're currently doing is still working, all those types of things. So when you like, what's your process when you encounter some new information, some new research uh, that has come out, how do you move from that theoretical side to then being able to start applying that in what you actually do? Yeah. So, I mean, when, when you look, when you start to look at research, you have to understand, and, and you know this, right? It's like, it's looking at a body of evidence. 
-hmm. It's not just a single research study. It's looking at everything. Um, And like, if I look at an article, uh, there was a recovery article that was put out a few years ago and it said how cold water immersion can actually attenuate the muscle hypertrophy signaling. Okay. Interesting by the title, right? Then I went and just started reading the study. And the first thing I do is after reading the study is I look at the references. Mm -hmm. What did this study reference? Who did they reference? Did they reference the people that they should be referencing? Like the leaders in the field, like the experts in the field, or did they skip them? If they skip them, I'm starting to wonder why. Yeah. Um, Was it deliberate or did they not know it? So I start to ask some questions there. How big was the study? Look at the methods and start to really be nitpicky about the methods. Um, I look at the design and, you know, it was interesting in this study, it was like they prescribed cold water immersion um, after every workout for 30 days. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. I would not have done that (laughs) because that is not the protocol in which I would prescribe. And it's not the protocol which is recommended in the literature for recovery with cold water immersion. Yeah. So it's like, man, they didn't even look at this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's sometimes a gap there is saying, well, what is, what is the applied world doing? What are the researchers who have a, a direct connection with the re- applied world doing? Mm-hmm. And what is this research group saying? Do they have a clue what these other people are doing? Right. And yeah. you can see the whole body of evidence. So that's, that's kind of the, the thing that I, the process I use. Um, uh, and I also keep in the back of my head that most of the research we see in like exercise science and sports science is done on the 18 to 21 year old college age, yep. university age individual. And they're men typically mm-hmm. um, who want money for beer. Yeah. Right? I can, wow, I can make 50 bucks by going into a lab and jumping in a cold plunge. Sure. I'll do that for six weeks or for, for a month. Yeah. How much do I get? A couple hundred bucks. Great. Sign me up. Yeah, totally. So you got to keep that in mind too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You can always, you can always find 12 people to do a research study on. doesn't mean (laughs) it's going to apply to everybody. Right. Um, All right. So let's get into uh, some recovery specifics. So I want to talk first about within session recovery. So optimizing within a session and let's, let's talk, just about like, let's start with uh, resistance training specifically. Mm-hmm. But when we're looking at um, setting out the the rest times between sets and the understanding that different clients are going to respond differently to the same rep ranges, the same loads, how do we best optimize the within session recovery? A couple of things you can do. I mean, and depending on the individual, like, and again, this is the depends part. You know, if you have a client that's extremely overweight, um, that rest is going to be absolutely just rest, mm-hmm. probably nothing, very little to do because they're going to get a training response while they're resting because they're probably their heart rate so elevated, right? It's like they're yeah. continuing to work out. Um, with other individuals, sometimes I will mix in stretching. Sometimes I will mix in. Um, uh, depends on what the what the with the resistance that I'm doing, right? Yeah. Be paired with another exercise. Uh, depends on what time of year, what time of season it is also, right? But yeah, it could be anything from just resting to another exercise to like an active isolated stretching. Yeah. It could be anything in between. Um, yeah, just to get, 
again, what's the, what's the desired goal? Like, what's the goal of our program? What are we trying to drive? And is there another stimulus I can add during that rest interval, which can contribute to getting them to move that ball farther down the field? Yeah. So maybe a better question would be differentiating between the physiological recovery versus the neurological recovery. Um, so yep. when we're looking at something, let, let's talk about somebody who's maybe looking for some muscle mass gain. We're in maybe a hypertrophy phase and we're looking for not necessarily the full neurological recovery, or we're just kind of looking for a little bit of physiological recovery there. Um, what are some things that we can do to help uh, maximize not only our time, but then not get too much recovery, but also not too little recovery? I think with hypertrophy, you can just keep going, right? And that's kind of the whole thing. You can go to another an opposing muscle group. You can go to a lower from an upper or an upper from a lower or a push to a pull or a pull to a push. Mm-hmm. You made a great point when you brought up neurological recovery because uh, the nervous system takes seven to 10 times longer to recover a nervous cell takes seven to 10 times longer to recover than a muscle cell. So if you're focusing on power, if you're focusing on strength, then you're going to have to have an extended long period of time. And a great, a great example to, to talk about that is like a vertical jump, mm-hmm. right? Somebody does a vertical jump and they jump X and then they jump again and they get to the next little whatever rung, right? And then yeah. they jump again. It's like, gosh, I can't get it. And they try and jump again. They can't get it. And you, if you tell them, I want you to go walk over that water fountain, get a drink of water, and then come back. Mm-hmm. And they walk over, they get a drink, they come back, and then they jump. And then they get to that next rung. They're like, how did that happen? Your nervous system wasn't recovered. Yeah. yeah. Metabolically, you're fine. Um, you know, skeletal muscle-wise, you're fine. All, all those things are fine. Just neurally, you were not. Yeah. So again, if my goal is neural driven, I need to think a seven to 10 times longer recovery time than something that is not neurally driven in the case of hypertrophy. Yeah. So just to get into a bit of science here. So when we're looking at the nervous system as a whole, what makes it take seven to 10 times longer than say a muscle cell to recover? Why did the neural, like why does the neural system take so much longer? So there's two types of uh, fatigue in the nervous system, right? There is central fatigue and there is peripheral fatigue. So an example of peripheral fatigue is if you were to like, um, you know, open and close your hand like 50 times as hard as you can over and over again, all of a sudden your, your, your forearm's going to start burning and you're going to have a hard time generating force and power. That's peripheral neuro fatigue. And the reason why that is happening is because you have some biochemical change at the muscle level which is inhibiting strength and power, right? Mm -hmm. So what you're having is you're having a change of hydrogen ions, you're having concentration of of, uh, calcium, sodium, potassium in and out of the cell, and the cells can't keep up for that and it's creating fatigue. So it's a biochemical change. You've altered the resting potential, not the rest of the active potential. You're changing the the gradient potential, which is eliciting this fatigue, right? Neurologically, it is not the best environment to generate force and power, mm-hmm. right? Um, central fatigue is, could be from too long of a session uh, or too many sessions over a short period of time, uh, multiple practices in a day. And that ties in with nutrition a little bit because the brain runs on glucose primarily. It likes to run on glucose. Yes, I know it can run on ketones, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, 
<laughs> another podcast, yeah. right? Um, but if you are depleted with your liver glycogen, right? Yeah. And you're trying to exercise, well, now your body is trying to exercise on depleted glycogen levels. It's trying to run your brain on depleted glycogen levels, which puts your nervous system at risk. Mm-hmm. So you have some residual central fatigue. Um, and that's before you even talk about environmental fatigue or psychological fatigue or anything like that, which could yeah. also contribute to those and exacerbate those. They don't live by themselves. They could live by themselves or they could be in combination with thereof. Yeah. But um, from a standpoint of physiology, what you said, it's usually just substrate issues from a central standpoint, could be environmental and psychological as well. Yeah. Um, and then we're talking about more local peripheral wise, it could be too much load. Right. So we need to, we need to allow that environment to that local physiological environment to return to a place where it can express its maximum strength and power. Mm-hmm. So typically when you're looking at central fatigue, central fatigue, you're, you're looking at, okay, with a person coming into the session, how are they kind of mentally, emotionally prior to the session, right? Like what environment are they coming from? They have a stressful day at work or, uh, you know, maybe if they're an athlete, you know, a stressful game, you know, the night mm-hmm. before and they're coming mm-hmm. into a recovery session. And then when you're and looking going, at- Or they're going to, right? Or going they, to. Have they, they traveled? Um, are they used to training in a- uh, an arid and cool environment. Now are they in hot and humid or vice versa? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So th- those things need to be considered as well. Yeah. And then the peripheral would be, you know, when you're talking about that the vertical jump, the person repetitively yeah. doing a vertical jump. Now you have the substrate, that biochemical change. Is there a way that we can maximize this recovery neurologically within the session? So when we're looking at peripheral fatigue, how can we maximize that recovery? There is some uh, technology that was developed at Stanford. It was called the core control. Um, And you put your, it's a cooling device actually. And uh, I just had a conversation with the company that acquired the technology and they're building on the next generation. So it's not out yet. Okay. Um, But essentially you would put um, your hand in this device and it would cause a rapid cooling. Hmm. And this rapid cooling would obviously change the thermodynamics of of the body and um, thermal regulation of the body and you could actually do more work. Hmm. Um, it's kind of like when they put computers in really cold rooms, yeah, right? Because the computers perform better in a cold room. They don't overheat and they can process better. Same type of thing. Yeah. If we can create a cooling uh, gradient across the body, then I'm not saying you crank your AC down to, you know, <laughs> you know zero Celsius and say, let's yeah. go. Um, but Uh, that that cooling actually did allow people to perform greater amounts of work. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's interesting because I remember when I, whenever I I trained at a facility that was basically a old warehouse. So it had like this Mm. garage door. I don't think it was just concrete walls. There was nothing really insulated. And so in the summer it was stinking hot. It was humid. And I loved it because we had the garage door open and I love that feeling of being outside when I'm training But then in the winter, on the other side, it's freezing cold. Even if you have the heaters on, it's still freezing cold. And I hated that. So I was in sweatpants and a sweatshirt and a toque. And like, I was trying to get warm because 
<laughs> for me, if I'm cold when I start, it's really hard for me to get warmer. But if I'm hot when I start, like I'm, I'm okay. I can, I can cool down whenever I, whenever I need to. Right. Sure. Cause as you said, you put your hand into something or you take a drink of cold water or something like that. Exactly. Is there anything nutritionally that we can do to help with that as well? I mean, if, if there is a deficiency, Right. Mm -hmm. And again, if in that example, I used way earlier in our talk, if I hadn't, if I'm working at four in the afternoon, and then I haven't eaten anything since eight in the morning, sure, right, I could be at a, a little bit of a depleted state mm -hmm. um, to where to where something during or pre would actually be a benefit to that, right? Yeah. Um, so 100%, that, that could be something to consider. Yeah. yeah, but it depends on the situation, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk now because that's all the the kind of within session recovery can we now talk about kind of the between session recovery so looking between and i know like i mentioned in the notes um, maximizing our adaptation to whatever stimulus we're putting in whether we're looking for muscular endurance cardiorespiratory endurance whether we're looking at uh, you know anything surrounding muscle mass strength how do we maximize or ensure that we're maximizing our client's recovery between sessions? So I think the first thing to do is you need to consider, again, talking about what we're trying to recover. We're trying to recover the nervous system. Mm -hmm. It's not about DOMS or delayed onset of muscle soreness. It's that, you know, everybody focuses on that aspect of recovery and saying, oh, if I'm not sore, I'm recovering. I'm, I'm concerned about recovering the nervous system. Mm -hmm then that person can come back the next day, do more or equal to what they've done before. And then hopefully they will see their gains faster. Yeah. Somebody who's tired. That's the whole purpose of recovery, right? Um, so depending on the situation, depending on the stimulus of that previous day um, and potentially what you're doing the next day uh, would depend what you want to prescribe. So for instance, the example I used before with cold water immersion, yeah. Um, if it's a high intensity training session, cold water immersion, 10 to 15 um, sec minutes, excuse me, is recommended. Yeah. Um, you know, you could get in a spa or a hot tub or whirlpool, right? But then 10 minutes is only recommended for that. And you should only use it no more than four days a week. And if you stay in there longer than 10 minutes, one, you risk dehydration. And two, you risk what's called neural fatigue. Like it's just like this, it's like this grogginess or this neural delay, right? Of, of being more lethargic the next day. And that's tough because everybody likes a hot tub, right? And it's like, that feels great. Time to yeah. get out. Well, I don't want to get out, right? I've yeah. only been in here 10 minutes. Like, well, you got to get out, right? So, yeah. um, you know, contrast showers can be beneficial, not only from a recovery standpoint, but you can also use them as a warm up, yeah. right? So if you've got hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, um, and end in cold before a session, that can be a great way of waking you up if you're kind of feeling flat. Yeah. Um, uh, if you're using it from a recovery technique, you know, one minute on, one minute off is great, great for a novice, but you want to end in warm. Yeah. Um, it, unless you have another workout that day. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, elevation, putting your feet up in the air, probably the least sexiest of any recovery <laughs> method out there, but freaking works great, yeah. right? Because the whole purpose of recovery is how can I return blood back to the heart, mm -hmm. or one of the purposes, but not increase my heart rate? Yeah. Right? That's what's great about pools is because of the hydrostatic pressure. That's what's great about compression socks. 
That's what's great about compression tights. That's what's great about the Normatec or peristaltic pneumatic compression. Yeah. And that's what's great about putting your feet up in the air, right? It mm -hmm. allows greater venous return without me doing more physiological work. Yeah. So I have something else helping me recover. Yeah, and that's, that's a good thing. You mentioned the heart rate, not wanting to change the heart rate when you're doing a recovery. And mm -hmm. um, I find one thing specifically is when you give a client and you're like, yeah, you know, try the, the cold shower or a cold plunge, instantly they're like, or they're breathing really fast, like, oh, it's so cold, right? And they actually change and go the opposite direction there. Our body actually reacts in an adverse way, increasing the stress on the system. And it's trying to get them to just, you know, slow the breathing down, try to control that breathing. Because yeah, it's going to be a shock when you first get into it, right? The body's experiencing a drastic change in temperature. But understanding kind of once again educating them on what you're trying to do like why is this important for them and then have them start to try to control that breathing because i love cold plunges cold plunges are like they're my thing so um i'm i'm like if it's not 57 58 degrees it's probably a little bit too warm um, i would agree yeah yeah and so like I, I i love it so we've got a our family's got a cottage up um just north of where we are here in toronto and so they've got a hot tub. They don't have a sauna yet. I want a sauna because I love dry saunas. I hate, I don't like the hot tub near as, I don't want to say I hate it because I go in it often, but yeah, I hear you. It's like dry saunas are amazing, especially like sauna. the old school wood ones. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I want one of those at the cottage. So eventually we'll put one of those in, but going into that and then hopping in the water, stay in the water for about 30 seconds or so you hop out, you wrap yourself and you feel warmer than you did when you got out of the hot tub yeah. or the sauna. And it's just, in, it's crazy that the, that heat kind of gets into the core. And then as soon as you hop in the cold, it shrinks it, uh, you know, yeah. um, you, you get all the blood vessels on the surface constricting. And then, and then all of a sudden it's like all that heat stuck inside. Like, wow. Why am I so warm? I just hopped out of 57 degree water, right. Or that cold plunge, but that's actually holding the heat in and getting that blood, as you said, pumping that blood back into the center. Cause it's pushing it out. Most of these, these hydrotherapy uh, protocols, um, are the ones that were used in like Roman times. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, right? Acupuncture, right? It's been around for thousands of years. Uh, Roman bathhouses have been around for, were, were started a long, long time ago. And many of those protocols, people use them for health and longevity and wellness. And um, yeah, those are a lot of the protocols which we still use today yeah. Uh, when prescribing to athletes. Yeah. yeah. Unbeknownst yeah. to a lot of people, but yeah. yeah. I, I say this on a lot of podcasts, it seems, but it's amazing how much the body knows and can kind of figure out with all, without all the sign, like the body's just smart, right? Like it's like, totally. I, I talk about this with recovery. Uh, and I had a, I had a post on Instagram about this where I'm like, the body knows which position it wants to go into to recover the best. Like it's mm -hmm. naturally going to go there. So, you know, you always hear coaches yelling at people, stand up tall, don't sit down, don't yeah, lie down, don't do thing. this. Yeah, 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 and it's like, you know, if the person wants to lie down on their back because their body's telling them that that's the best position to make it easy on their heart, I think that's actually probably a smart position to be in. Right. Rather than standing up, walking around my with my arms over my head. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I like that the body, even when we're looking back then, you know, the, the bathhouses and the, you know, like saunas have been around for a long period of time too, right? And uh, yeah. cold plunges, like 
just being able to use those you to just maximize have to give the body a chance. Yeah. Give it an opportunity to do its thing. Yeah. Yeah. Every now and then, if I do a high intensity, I get that feeling that um, I just need sugar, right? Because like my body already knows, like my blood sugar is sitting low here. I've just drained all the muscle glycogen and probably a lot of that liver glycogen. My blood sugar's down. My brain's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I just need some sugar. So it's often like a, a quick little shot of orange juice or something like that okay. just to yeah. get it into me. And then, and then you go, or, or, you know, maybe a fruit smoothie or something like that, some protein yeah. or whatever. But, um, so can we just discuss really quickly super compensation? Because this is a question that I get asked a lot. So I want to get actually your kind of, ideas surrounding it uh, because it's talked about a lot in personal training in strength and conditioning and yet it's I feel as though it's people overcomplicate it and they they don't quite understand how to apply it to their training so can you just talk about super compensation yeah so um, what it is is that when we we have a baseline level of performance wherever we are today right and when we train um, or are exposed to a stress stressor, our performance drops. Um, so if, I, if that stress is me curling a 25 pound weight for three sets of, or four sets of 15, my performance drops. That's the stress. And that's what's supposed to happen. If I do enough recovery and in conjunction with that training, all of a sudden now that 25 pounds is easier. Mm -hmm. So now I, I've, my level of performance instead of 25 pounds is now 30 pounds. So I have what's called a super compensation where I am now at a higher level of my initial performance. So I continue to train on that. So it's this upward type of, it's like the stock market, right? It's up and down, up and down, yeah. but it should have a, a trend going up the entire time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So, Basically. yeah, when we're, so when we're trying to figure that out, so when we're looking at, you know, both, because we're looking at both kind of the micro and the macro here, right? We're mm -hmm. looking at making sure that we get back to at least kind of the, the, our, our normal range of performance within the session, right? We don't want to keep having to go down and wait because we're not giving ourselves enough recovery between exercises, right? When we're looking both neurologically and physiologically, but also between sessions as well, right? That's why they say, you know, don't train every single day, all the body parts and push yourself because you need that recovery between because you're going to see the body's not going to have time to get that good recovery and start coming mm -hmm. back up. So when we're looking, let's just talk between sessions. Is there, is there a specific way that we can figure out what that time frame is uh, to, to maximize that? So like when we have that recovery or is it kind of a guess and check kind of recovery and is it individual for everybody it's going to be individual for everybody and here's the thing it's like you know i mentioned earlier that what we're trying to recover is the nervous system unfortunately we don't have a great way of measuring that mm -hmm. and that's the problem like we know what we want to measure but there's not really a good way of measuring measuring it yeah so how do we measure the nervous system what are there available methods well we can measure um, heart rate variability Eh. Uh, we can measure alpha amylase, which is saliva and mm -hmm. saliva. Eh. Uh, we can measure uh, galvanic skin temperature. 
Yeah. Uh, so, right. It's like, these are, these are indirect ways of measuring um, autonomic function. Mm -hmm. um, some aren't practical. Most are overly optimistic. Yeah. Right. And then that's, that's the problem. Right. Yeah. Um, so right now, unfortunately, we're doing a lot of guesswork. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're monitoring, you know, how are people doing monitoring the, because the body's only stimulus and response. That's it. Yeah. Right. What is the stimulus I'm doing and what is the response I'm seeing? If my athletes are not seeing the desired response, I need to look at my stimulus. Yeah. Cause that needs to change. And, you know, the perfect example would be like, um, back in the early days of, of when I started working in this profession, combine preparation for the NFL. Yeah. And you have eight weeks to get these guys ready for the biggest job interview of their lives. And it was a shock cycle, right? From a periodization standpoint, it was training multiple times a day for eight weeks. And we had to infuse a ton of recovery in there to make sure they could handle the rigors of training. Yeah. Um, and that's what we would deploy everything in our arsenal. We didn't have the ability to measure nervous system function other than the ability for them to perform the next workout yeah. to the same level of quality, mm -hmm. which is very telling, right? This person seems much more fatigued. This person wouldn't. That's, that's what we talk about in meetings, right? In between sessions, this person did okay. They were dragging a little bit. I don't know if they got enough recovery. We might need to look at something else, change yeah. something, modify something. Um, and it was tough. It was like walking a tightrope. You couldn't like back them off and say, take a week off. Yeah. No, you had eight weeks. Yeah. So you, very little room for mistake. Yeah. And, and literally their future depends on it. Right. Their future and, and millions of dollars, right? If yeah. somebody moves from third round to first round, that's huge. Yeah. Or first Just a signing round bonus alone. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the things that you touched on is that we have to make these minor adjustments even within. So even if you have just a, you know, a general fitness enthusiast who maybe plays hockey or soccer or football or something once a week, we need to be able to look at, okay, how is their recovery between like when they come into the next session, as you said, are they performing the way that they were before or are they more tired? Are they, and then we have to look, okay, well, what happened within that time? And was there one enough time? And then what other stresses did they have? You know, once again, putting context into what you're seeing, uh, were there stresses that day? Are there stresses coming up? Are they experiencing, you know, um, so for instance, you know, when I look at, you know, my family, you know, we've went through stuff with our, our, our grandmother, like our Oma uh, with, and that's just hugely stressful. And so having to deal with that is just something that's, um, something that doesn't happen all the time, but it just comes up and then you got to deal with it. And yep. I think being able to make those minor adjustments within that. And as you said, looking at, okay, well, what did I do? And then I'm not getting the response. So do I add more rest time between my sessions? Cause typically you like, they're like, you know, they have 24 hours between or 48 hours, I guess, like give a full day between the same body part, right. If you're going to, if you're going to push it, um, at least for recovery. But that's once again, as you said, is going to be individual for everybody. People are going to, some people recover very, very quickly and are, are efficient with it. And then some people don't. And so being able to work in those strategies for that. That's like eight, saying eight hours of sleep is right for everybody. 
Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk all about sleep, but uh, we are going to do that in part number ah. two, because I have a whole host of questions Perfect. about sleep. And so we'll make that part number two, Love pretty it. much all about sleep. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.